the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone is having a good week. So what have we got coming up for you? Our guest this week is the Irish Olympic show jumper Billy Toomey, who gives us his insight on getting the best out of mares. I think patience is the right word for these mares. You've got to be patient with them and it doesn't have to happen immediately. If you know you've got the goods underneath you, you know in time it'll come your way and just give them the time to show you what they've got, you know. We'll also be chatting over the week's news, focusing on return to sport and charities facing tough times and hearing from vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine. Ricky advises us on what to do when faced with an all too familiar situation. Your vet gets called out, you've got a sick horse, they present you with a whole load of diagnostic tests that you could do. You're almost confused about where to go and what to do and how to monitor something. More from Ricky later, but for now, pull down your stirrups and let's get going. I'm delighted to introduce our guest this week, the Irish Olympic show jumper Billy Toomey. Hi Billy, how are you? Hi, good, yourself? Yes, I'm well, thank you. Billy, we have a feature in this week's magazine about your ride, Kimba Flamenco. He's a homebred for Kim Barzillet, and you have a very long connection with her as an owner, don't you? Could you tell us a little about how you first met Kim and started riding for her? Yeah, it is a long-term and a very successful relationship we've had, me and Kim. We started with the first horse, Tinga Serenade, some years ago now. Um, I met Kim at a show in Solihull, and the mare was jumping there. She'd already been really successful with Emma Jo Slater and herself and she wanted the horse to go to the next level and she asked would I be interested in riding it for her and taking it to some international shows etc. She ended up having a super career she's probably the best horse I ever had so that was Tinka then the next horse we ventured together with was Lizzie Mary and obviously she was a very successful mare she went on to win the King George at Hickstead and she was then sold to Danny Goldstein who's had a lot of success with her and now we've had a lot of success with our third horse Kimba Flamenco and he interestingly enough is by my good stallion Jutam Flamenco so it's all nicely connected. Yeah, really nice circle there. And you call Kimber Flamenco Cody at home. What's he like as a character and as a horse to sort of have around and ride and train? Yeah, he's super easy. He's um, very straightforward to handle, very straightforward to work. Uh, He's very brave in the ring, doesn't spook at fences, happy to go in all the big grass arenas. Uh, So, yeah, I'm lucky he's a very uncomplicated horse. And one of your biggest wins together was at Liverpool at the New Year show last year in the Grand Prix. How did that class pan out for you? What was the day like? Yeah, it was a it was a really good day because it was the third time I've won the Grand Prix in I think it's been ran for four years, uh, bar the, the terrible night they had the fire. So to do it three times was really, yeah, I was really proud about that. And the horse jumped on that evening. He jumped uh, mega. He was he was really, really good, really consistent. And he won the class well. He won the class comfortably in the end, which was nice. And that's not the only Grand Prix that he's won either, is it? No, he's been very successful for me. He won another big Grand Prix in uh, in Falstabo, a CSIO five star, which is you know as high as you'd get in our in our sport. He was very good in the winter in Florida. He was second in another CSIO five star uh, in Palm Beach. 
Um, so yeah, he's he's been consistently winning at all you know at all the top shows around the world. So um, yeah, very lucky to have him. Yeah, and just touching there on on the time you spent out in Florida, you've obviously had an interrupted year like everyone else. But before all of the coronavirus pandemic kicked off, you were spending some time in Florida riding at the Winter Equestrian Festival and at the Palm Beach Masters at Deerage. I think it was your first time sort of riding that tour, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, it was interesting. I mean, it's it's quite different. The sport is quite different over there. Um, a lot of it is geared up with the amateur jumping. A lot of professionals look after a lot of amateur clients and um, sort of the main way it varies to Europe. But they're very high level. You know, you had a lot of the top riders in the world competing there. A lot of Europeans that went there also. Um, and obviously we had some warm weather, so that was quite nice. And that tour sort of also offers jumpers the opportunity to be based in one place and jump sort of week in, week out on top horses and young horses, doesn't it? And I know that's something that the show jumpers really value because you spend so much of the year traveling. Yeah, it's a very interesting place. You, you know, within about a three mile radius, you've got sort of four or five shows that you can. I mean, some people actually hack their horses from their farm to their show. So they'd finish jumping on Thursday evening, go back to their farms and then come back again on Wednesday and set up with the shows. So it's it's a sort of a unique place, uh, but very horse friendly. And um, I, like I said, I really enjoyed my time I spent there. And luckily enough, the horses were, you know, they were on good form and I had a good a good amount of success with Kimba Flamenco and with Lady Lou and Shabbat, my stallion. Yeah, you have a strong team of horses there at the top level. That must be sort of a good feeling to not to have all your eggs in one basket with one top horse, but to have those other couple really backing up Kimba Flamenco as well. Yeah, I mean, nowadays the the sport has evolved so much. There's so many shows week in, week out. And if you want to do it successfully, I think you, you know, ideally it's nice to have a couple of good or good Grand Prix horses to go out because you can obviously rest one horse one weekend and use the, the other horse the next weekend. So you can sort of manage your horses in the best possible way. Yeah. And you can, you can then sort of afford to really be a horseman and produce the horses at the right time for the right events. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And have you been locked down in England, Billy? Where are you based now? And is it, has he been over here for most of the time? Yeah. So when I came back from Florida, luckily I had organized to leave in any case, just before it all sort of hit. So luckily my horses could get back from the States and back to the UK. Uh, I have my base in, in Nottingham in the East Midlands. I've been there for the last sort of 15 years. And um, I did it a little different to other people. When I, when I knew what was coming along, I'd sort of stopped with my horses. I didn't, you know, keep them in work. Uh, I roughed mine off actually, and the stallion went to the stud. The mare, uh, Lady Lou, did they did an embryo transfer with her? Kimba Flamenco had a good couple of weeks, five or six weeks off. Thought it was a nice opportunity to give them a good rest, and then hopefully, fingers crossed, things start again, and and you're dealing with fresh horses going forward. And looking ahead to next year, we obviously have the prospect of hopefully having the Tokyo Olympics rearranged and coming back. What would be your sort of hopes, assuming that shows are back up and running, in terms of how you would think about producing Kimba Pomenko, who is a shortlisted horse with a view to selection for that Games? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you have to you have to believe that the Olympics will go ahead, so you would work back uh, as the Olympics being your main goal. So you try and set out a target of, of what shows you look forward to doing. But in the back of your mind, you're always keeping the Olympics as a target. So, 
you know, we'd get together with our team manager, uh, Michael Blake, and figure out a program going forward for what Nations Cups they want to see you at in the beginning of the year. Fingers crossed they're going to have them and then work out a good program for each horse um, to sort of peak for the Olympics on that date. And exciting for Ireland to have a team a team spot in Tokyo because I know you missed out because there was no team qualified for Rio. So exciting to have that opportunity again. Yeah, I mean, Ireland, it's a small country, but we have a lot of a lot of talented riders and a lot of uh, our riders are in the top 50 in the world. So, you know, as a country, we're doing really well in the sport. The future is bright for Irish show jumping, a lot of good owners, good riders, good horses. So fingers crossed it all comes together come the Olympics. And as you said earlier, you were an Olympian back in London in 2012 with Tinker Serenade. What was that experience like? Honestly, it was a little difficult for me because I didn't go as well as what I'd like to have done. Uh, I mean, we competed well, but I didn't finish as high as what I would have liked. Honestly, it was difficult for me to get the mare. I had struggled a little bit with her health before the Olympics and she wasn't in our best physical condition going there. Um, you know, her bloods weren't where I wanted to be, et cetera, et cetera. So it was yeah, a small bit frustrating because a couple of months previous to the Olympics, she was on amazing form and she was winning in global tours, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, a little frustrating that I didn't uh, do better, but I mean, a great experience to, to compete in Olympic games and to represent your country at Olympic level was very proud, but not the greatest memory in the world, but uh, still proud to have been there. Yeah, and a bit of maybe unfinished business, the sense there around the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It'd be good, good to to go back and uh, and Put do better right. next time. Yeah, yeah. And just touching earlier on having talked about Tinker Serenade there and about Lizzie Mary, the that other very successful mayor you had for Kim Barzilay. Obviously, you've had a lot of success with mayors earlier with those two, particularly, and now you have Lady Lou. Um, do you have any particular preference for you ride mares, you ride geldings, you ride stallions? Do you have a preference? Yeah, I mean, the mares have been very successful for me. I'm not too sure if there is a, a reason for that or not. I mean, I've had successful stallions and geldings in Kimber Flamenco, but I mean, I seem to have a good rapport with the with the mares and especially the, maybe the trickier mares. I had Anastasia initially, which was a little difficult horse, but in the end, she finished up being very, very successful. Tinker Serenade was also not the easiest mare in the world, but Again, she finished with an unbelievable career. She finished jumping at the age of 19, which is nearly unheard of. So she stayed healthy and competitive for such a long period, you know. Yeah, I'd like to think I can deal with the difficult mares and I can meet them halfway and, and try to get the best out of them. But, I mean, that's what you try to do with every animal gelding stallion or mare in any case, you know. Yeah, and are there any particular sort of philosophies or, or tips and tricks that you keep in mind with the, with those mares when you're trying to, as you say, meet them halfway? We often say that you can tell a gelding, but you have to ask a mare. Yeah, there's there's, there's quite a lot of truth in that, actually. Um, I mean, it's it's managing them in the correct way. And, and um, you know, all horses are different. If I take them as examples, Anastasia was one of these horses that was ridiculously careful and she needed to build up confidence to get to a situation where she was sure of herself that she could jump the biggest classes. So she took time to produce. Tinker was um, a little bit special horse. She could be naughty at times, so she needed encouragement in the right way. 
But in the end, when she got to an age, the naughtiness just disappeared and she just got on with her job. So I think it's I think patience is the right word for these mares. You know, you got to you got to be patient with them and it doesn't have to happen immediately. If you know you've got the goods underneath you, you know, in time it'll come your way and just give them the time to show you what they've got, you know. And obviously breeding is an area that you're very involved in as well. You were you were mentioning your stallion earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Sue Davis, my long-term owner, is uh, they've been into the breeding for many, many years. Louis Dam, the first stallion we've had, is, is yeah, one of the most successful styers in Europe. And his offspring have been yeah, fantastic for breeders everywhere. Um, and then Chetan Flamenco seems to have taken over and he's done, he's done the same. He's been really popular and Sue has, has done really well. She's bred a lot of horses that have gone on to jump a top level. She sold uh, recently. They had the top price yearling in the, in the Bowlesworth sale a couple of weeks ago, which was a, an embryo uh, out of Tinker Serenade by Jetem Flamenco. So she's doing really well with that. And um, Kim obviously is breeding away. She's breeding with... Um, with a couple of good mares and using our stallions, which is good. So it's all, all connected nicely, you know. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that Lady Lou has had embryo transfer during this break. Are you able to tell us who her hopeful future progeny are going to be? Yeah, she had um, she had a double ovulation. So hopefully we're lucky that we have two Shabbat offspring uh, out of Lady Lou. Um, they, I think they did a scan, uh, the first scan, and they looked like the embryos were, were healthy and growing. So fingers crossed it stays that way. E- embryo transfer can be, in theory, the most wonderful idea in the world, but in practicality, it can be difficult. You know, often you, you flush, you inseminate, and it doesn't always go your way, and you're repeating, repeating, repeating. But luckily, it's, it's, it's worked with the mare in the window that we had to do it. Um, so Twemlow's have done a good job with that and fingers crossed it all goes the right way you know fingers crossed as you say embryo transfer sounds like such a wonderful idea to allow us to breed from these mares while they continue their their careers at the top level not always the smoothest in practice but got the expertise there in Twemlow's to help you Billy just a final question tell us about one of the younger horses in your team who people should look out for a horse that we could look out for for the 2024 or 2028 Olympics I think I have a, a very interesting horse called um, Piwit de Zoito. It's actually another horse that Sue Davis has bred. It's a small grey horse, and it's actually by one of the stallions that unfortunately died at a tragic fall with him many years ago in Belgium. But we'd kept some frozen semen from the stallion, and he's bred this wonderful gelding. I think he has real potential. He's super careful. He's very like the father, a lot of blood, very light, very quick. I'm hoping that he's a horse that can jump the biggest classes, although I'm not sure. Time will tell. I hear that the Fox Hunter final is not running now, but he would have been a horse potentially that would have gone close to winning that class. But I mean, there'll be many, many good young horse classes that I can aim him for. He's a real hope for the future, that horse. Just give us the name of that young horse again, Billy, for people to look out for. Peewit. Desoito, I think it's a, a number in another language, I'm told. And he's a grey, so he'll be a nice, easy one to spot. Yes, yeah. Great. Oh, well, thank you so much, Billy. And uh, hopefully we'll see you out and about again at some shows soon. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you very much.
We've got a bit of a different lineup this week on the podcast because our news editor, Eleanor Jones, is out to share with her horse today, which is very exciting. So joining me here on the podcast for today's discussion, we have Horse and Hounds editor-in-chief, Sarah Jenkins. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Pippa. And also our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy. Hello. And we are going to be talking about the latest COVID-19 news this week as sport continues to feel its way into the restart. And there's also news on how the situation is affecting some charities in the horse world. So I'm very honoured that Pippa's going to let me ask the questions this week. Thank you, Pippa, which is great because it gives us an opportunity to hear from you and to hear your insight, particularly when we get on to talking about eventing and what's happening in the sport. Um, but first of all, I should ask, how are you both? Have you had a good weekend? How was your, how was your super Saturday? Did you go wild on the beach? I did not go wild on the beach, but I did go and ride on Sunday. And um, actually, it was quite funny because last week on the podcast, Eleanor and Lucy and I were chatting about horses being excitable in the wind. And I said, oh, your problem, girls, is having mares because, you know, I've got a nice sensible gelding. And mum and I were just talking about the podcast as I was as I was giving our horse a bit of a stretch in the middle of a schooling session. And uh, we were laughing about that and, uh, you know, praising Alfie, our nice sensible gelding. And literally, as we said that, he did a massive spook and I nearly fell off. So it's <laughs> like he was laughing at us for saying how reliable he is it's a sure far way to get a fool right saying you've not fallen off for ages it's, <laughs> it's that sort of mentality they're, they're on to us yeah no I didn't go wild on super Saturday either I um what did I do I I went for a ride <laughs> on my horse he's still still feeling fresh but uh not quite as sharp as last week um we met a a group of cyclists actually and on was it Sunday it was really really windy and mm. she's quite good about traffic and things like that and and one came past and he warned me that there are a few more coming behind and normally she can sort of hear them but uh, the wind was sort of drowning them out and they were lovely and they they came past sort of one at a time she saw one she saw another and I think it just never occurred to her that bicycles might might travel in herds um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was all a bit of a shock but they were so lovely and um, said hello and gave us lots of time but um, but yeah I could almost see a sort of think bubble coming out of her out of her head as um <laughs> four or five of them coming by bless her well I'm glad to, to hear that you're enjoying some riding um and that everyone's behaving themselves and you know I'm I'm uh, aghast at, at the behavior that we're seeing where people are um getting on with their lives after lockdown but um not listening to the to the rules that we still need to follow about social distancing etc I haven't seen a great deal of that in a questionism though would you two disagree have you seen any behavior in the horse world that that people aren't following the rules at all I haven't really been out anywhere yet, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I'm in a, a slightly different situation to some people in that um, my horse lives with my parents and I'm not in the same household as my parents. So as yet, I'm still social distancing from them. And so only riding at home, we haven't been out to any any training or competition. So I haven't actually seen much, but I am going out reporting on Friday at Tweezledown. So I'll be really interesting to see uh, to see what's happening there at one of the very first British eventing events to come back. Absolutely. And how is that experience going to differ for you from your from your usual trips to Tweezledown reporting? So there's quite a lot of things. The first is that I had to make sure with the organisers in advance that they were happy for me to go, having already got a blanket yes from British Eventing, that they were happy for media to attend events, provided individual organisers were happy. The organisers have asked me to wear a blue tabard so that I can be identified as press because just regular spectators are not allowed. So I, I bought myself a blue tabard on Amazon Prime. I was considering getting one that looked like a dinner lady, but I went for <laughs> one with some little pockets to keep my pens in. Um, so I'll be wearing 
a blue tabard. We've also got to let them know what time we're arriving and myself and our photographer. And I was saying earlier, like the things that I do at events when I go out reporting are hang around and watch and talk to people. And both of those are slightly verboten. So it's going to be quite strange. I guess I will be able to watch because that's my job as a member of the press, but not, not speaking to anybody. And I imagine that all my interviews are probably going to be done on the phone there are no prize givings and obviously it wouldn't be appropriate for me to be trudging around the lorry park and going into people's lorries to, to have have chats with winners, which is often what you end up doing if you don't catch them at prize giving. So I imagine I'm going to spend, you know, some time watching the action and walking the course and then I'll be going home and, and picking up the phone to do interviews. Brilliant. Well, we'll we'll look forward to hearing what it was like. One thing that I've been a little bit um, unhappy to see is that there's been some discussion on social media with people um, talking about, you know, how they can smuggle extra people in in the Luton, you know, to to sort of get around the rules of how many people you can have going with you. And of course, that has created concern amongst governing bodies. And we've got some warnings coming from CEOs, Jude Matthews and Ian Graham this week. Lucy, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that and, and why it's so important? Yes, it's uh, it's hard to know when sort of I'm reading things on social media how much is what's actually the general feeling out there and how much is the echo chamber that is people that I have and people I follow and what I interact with on social media. Um, but I have seen a little bit about that. Uh, the vast majority sort of definitely to say of people being very sensible and planning to be sensible and saying what Jude Matthews and the other CEOs have been saying, which is please, you know, play by the rules or no one's going to have any sport at all and we want to keep people safe it is so important it was quite interesting as well I was speaking to an event organizer one of the first if not the first unaffiliated horse trials which ran at the weekend and they had measures in place and they were being as expected rightfully expected very very strict about about things like that they even had instead of a secretary's tent they had a drive-through registration area so as you pulled up in your lorry right at the very entrance to the event uh, there was someone in what would look like a cross-country control box and with PPE on checking that only the people that were there were meant to be there of course you know you can't guarantee that someone's not hiding in the Luton but you'd really hope not um, mm. and but that's right at the entrance to the event so they were being really hot on making sure that only the people coming onto the site were people that should be there and I spoke to her on Monday as well and she said everything went really well and people were being very, very sensible about it too. So, I mean, you'd, you'd think people would see it's in their own interest, right? Absolutely, we want events to, to continue and it's phenomenal that, that of all the sports, we are out there and we're doing it and, you know, to have anything to, to put the kibosh on that would be massively disappointing. Um, and of course, there's going to be different tech utilised in competition now, which I'm quite excited about, not just for allowing competition to ha- happen during during the, the post-lockdown era, but just generally going forward, how that might be positive for the equestrian world. Lucy, I know you've, you've been investigating for that story. Could you tell us a little bit more about how we're going to benefit from that tech? Sure. It's amazing, isn't it? It's, I know it's been talked about quite a lot, how everyone's now a Zoom expert um, with sort of 100, 110 days, whatever we're on now of lockdown. And in that sort of really relatively short space of time, the tech that's popped up, the same event as Elmwood Equestrian have come up with a dressage test sheet app and they tested it during their virtual shows, which were running when no one was going anywhere. And then they put it into action at the event at the weekend. And it's so clever it just and so simple to use as well. I think that's what's 
been quite important and they tap in you know score and they've come up with some frequently used phrases with working with a team of dressage judges to make sure they got the wording right and there's also options to write their own or even add a voice note and they tap that in and that gets pinged off to their online scoring system and so it's quite quick but also you know then you're not having to have a dressage writer next to you which is you know a social distancing issue and Little Downham as well have got a fence judging app too which again similarly tap in and so that that reduces the amounts of sort of bits of paper and crossovers that you might not always think of happening but actually happen quite a lot so you know sort of score books going from one person to the next person to the scorers and then that's actually quite a lot of sort of interactions and crossovers so while those will be a backup it's not something that's happening you know multiple times a day and it's yeah no, it's, it's phenomenal. And I, I find it very interesting. I was involved when Horse and Hound launched ECRO, which was an event entry website. And I remember working with developers and explaining to them the challenges of how we run events in the horse world is very much still someone with a with a, with a a ring binder and a clipboard and the developers not being able to understand. But the, and the, the argument always was, well, you won't have Wi-Fi in a field. You won't be able to get this tech to work. But it's brilliant that they've found ways to make it work. And it it's only going to make the the sport more efficient, right? I mean, I'm, I'm talking to show jumpers who are saying it's amazing. I'm in an hour. In an hour. Um, there's no more hours of, of waiting around for my class. But meanwhile, I do have to enter in advance, which is something that, that show jumpers probably never thought they would do. I wonder how many people will, will want to go show jumping now that didn't previously, because that's something that appeals to them, being able to get in and out and get on with the rest of their day. Yeah, definitely. It feels like whenever I go just unaffiliated show jumping, I am there for about nine hours before my class because I hate to be late. But I'm always there too early, which means, you know, nine is maybe an exaggeration, but quite often two or three hours of hanging around waiting. And then it all happens in a rush. So the idea of having of having set times for show jumping and, and also of having people following their times for eventing in the show jumping is um, is the dream, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And Lucy, I understand you're, you're thinking of show jumping your mare now rather than eventing. Yeah, so I made the switch last year and because she prefers it, basically, um, which is fine by me. And yeah, she we had quite a nice time and I hadn't re-registered quite yet. I was just sort of getting around to it after the winter and things. And then just as I was probably thinking about it, lockdown happened. And to be honest, I think she might benefit from some more training it sort of kind of made me reassess everything really I found I was really enjoying just riding for the sake of riding um, mm. which was lovely to have that pressure taken off I've always been fairly competition focused and whether that's been eventing or team chasing or whatever and sort of that's helped me sort of make a plan with where I'm going and stuff but actually just having all that taken away I just have just enjoyed playing around and enjoying enjoying riding yeah and I think that's that's something a lot of people will relate to we're, we're seeing a couple of or some professionals I've read a column from Carl Hester recently where he said similarly it was lovely to have no pressure of competition and just be able to focus on the on the horses and I've just read a Ros Cantor access all area that we've got coming up where she says similarly that actually it's been lovely to to spend summer days you know not bleak winter days but summer days training event horses and there's benefits to that but they're I mean they're not short of people wanting to enter right I saw Tweezledown's entries when they, the day they opened I, I looked back a few hours later and it was 800 entries so people there are obviously some people enjoying the training and taking time but others gagging to get out and of course they're putting on extra events with that in mind Pippa can you tell us a little bit about what they're, they're planning to put on for everyone 
Yeah, but as you say, Tweezerdown had over 1,400 entries and there are other events having having a massive uptake as well. I know that Aston LaWalls have a, have a lot of entries and both at Aston and at Tweezerdown, British Eventing gave permission for those organisers to run extra days of competition. And it's really good to see that and to see both organisers and and governing bodies being reactive and, and, and being willing to help out where it's possible. Um, we're also seeing new events at the top level. So Blenheim was a, a casualty of uh, COVID-19, but Burnham Market is going to run the classes that would normally run at Blenheim. So a CCI four-star L and a CCI four-star short for eight and nine-year-old horses on what would have been the Blenheim weekend at a new fixture at that Norfolk venue um, run by Alec Lahore and his team. So great to see an established venue stepping into the breach there and and giving riders the chance to to run their horses at that level gain qualifications and and sort of keep moving onwards towards next year so good to see both the grassroots and the higher levels of the sport responding to to demand and i i'm, I'm sure there will be a lot of entries to that event at burner market yeah absolutely and that'll be ever so exciting for for the the followers of the sport as well the other thing I wanted to ask you about Pippa was what British Eventing are doing. They've announced some discounts for members, right? Um, to sort of, you know, in answer to the to the calls that people were feeling they were missing out by not having their membership extended, etc. What are they going to be doing to help members? Yeah, that's right. So these discounts are for people who have, have held the sort of equivalent registrations and memberships for a set period this year. But when you re-register a horse, a full horse registration next year, there's a 50% discount and a 10% discount on membership renewals in 2021 as well um, for people who've held their membership during the appropriate months this year. So that's a really good good thing to see. You know, the governing bodies are struggling I don't want to say they're struggling financially because I don't think that's fair. That sounds like they're in a bad financial position, but they've certainly been hit financially. But it's good to see them responding to those calls and and supporting their members where they can. Absolutely. And I think BD are doing something for their members and are offering an extension on membership. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So BD is offering two months extensions to those who maintained horse registrations while competition was off. Um, an extension of horse membership there for uh, for people in the dressage world. Yeah, of course, everyone has been impacted financially, but it's great to see that the the governing bodies are in a good enough position to be able to do that. Um, of course, there are bodies that are faring less well in this time and extremely sad news to hear that the Animal Health Trust is no more um, where they'd ha- hoped for a, for a bit of a bailout um, particularly from the from racing organizations that hasn't come to fruition at this stage. Um, Lucy can you tell us a bit more about that story? Yeah it's it's so sad and I was really shocked actually when to hear it happened on on Friday even though we've been writing about it since March when we first heard that uh, finances were were sort of on the rocks that it's devastating and a huge impact for for the horse world but not just the horse world the animal world in general and also with sort of one health being such a big thing sort of a rising thing the sort of human health as well it's they do such a lot of pioneering stuff there it's quite frightening to think that it's no more and I'm sure that the equestrian bodies and the industry will pull together and that seems to be what is happening and that there needs to be something to fill the void that the Animal Health Trust is is going to leave mm. when you think even mm. back to last year with the equine flu outbreak and the huge amount of guidance and uh, monitoring that they did surrounding that is just it's quite frightening when we're in the middle of a human pandemic to think that that body is no more absolutely I don't know if it's a crass analogy but I was thinking it's like not having who 
mm. um, in this era, you know, looking back to all, as you say, that they did during the equine flu outbreak last year, they really were at the heart of everything and, and leading the response. It's hard to imagine what will happen now. Um, I think there is hope, uh, David Mountford was saying, that, that there is, there's a need for yeah. um, other veterinary associations to, to step up and to form bodies that will fill that role. Can you tell us any more about that? Yes, um, so I was hoping to find out a little bit about more about that sort of in the coming days, really. I know that discussions are happening. We heard from British Horse Racing that they're coordinating racing side of that and they've been in discussions and they're working with the wider equestrian sector to to fill that void. I was looking at the finances last night um, for this week's story and it cost, what was it, 17 million for the Animal Health Trust last year. That's how much it spent I know that sounds a lot of money, but when you've got sales that have got, you know, million, even, you know, tens of million turnover in, in a day and all those horses have benefited from the work the Animal Health Trust has done, I I struggle mm. that it's gone under because of finances. And I know there's a lot of things going on in the world and it just, yeah, it sticks a bit. But hopefully there'll yeah. be some good come out of this because it has, it has to be. And all those people losing their jobs, it's just, yeah, terrible time. Really sad. And the other story that, that was quite poignant this week um, is the research that the Riding for the Disabled Association has done, looking at the impact that their temporary closure of centres has had on the well-being of participants and also volunteers. Yes, absolutely. Um, they did a study, I think it was about 3,000, just over 3,000 of their members, to understand a bit more of what impact the closure of centres due to COVID is having and the statistic it was 80% said being unable to access the RDAs had negative impact on their physical well-being and that's huge that's a huge number of people and of course there were sort of high stats as well for for the same of their mental well-being I think that was around 77% and 75% said it's affecting both and the big thing as well a lot of them said is missing the horses is one of the things they're missing most but it kind of highlights something that we all know, um, which is how important the RDA is and the huge work that they do. But when you see num- figures and numbers like that really spell out quite how important they are and what a vital role they do and how important it's, it is to get those groups up and running again. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, the, the challenges are clear, you, you know, where people need assistance um, mounting when they're riding the horses, often they'll have two, two volunteers um, supporting a rider as well as a leader um, a lady at my yard used to volunteer and she got so much out of volunteering she enjoyed it so much from a social aspect and sort of the giving back and I know that's something that, that the research revealed as well that those people are missing that interaction all of this as you say as we know as an industry horses do so much good in so many different ways and where it is you know you've got people who this is their only form of exercise in the week and they don't have that right now it just goes to show what a vital service the RDA is and I hope that actually that could become a positive that you know if this can be seen uh you know in terms of fundraising in terms of support even government support if if it can be shown what a positive the society is maybe that could bode well for the future but obviously at the the moment it's extremely depressing and difficult for for those that are affected yeah well thank you so much guys for all your input this week um thank you pippa for trusting me with the interviews mike hope i've disgraced myself too much and um good luck reporting at tweezer down i hope you you have a great day i hope everyone is is following the rules and we look forward to, to reading your report 
Thank you, Sarah. It's been great to have you. I also just wanted to mention that we promised last week that we would be talking more about mental health, particularly among jockeys this week. And that's not something we've forgotten about. We are rolling it on a week or two, but it's a story that Lucy is, is following very closely and definitely something we'll be coming back to on the podcast in the future. Absolutely. We're very much looking forward to following that story and, and reading your report, Lucy. Thanks very much, guys. Bye, Pippa. Bye. Bye, Lucy. Bye. So now it's time to hear from our vet, Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine, talking about tests which can be used to diagnose problems with your horse. On this episode, I want to talk about that time when your vet gets called out and you've got a sick horse and they present you with a whole load of diagnostic tests that you could do. And you're almost confused about where to go and what to do and how to monitor something. So the sick horse or the classical sick horse where you come down, he or she is not eating, they've either got diarrhea or something like that. You obviously know they're unwell, but how unwell are they? There are a plethora of tests that you can do out there. So we can take blood samples and run what we term hematology and biochemistry. So looking at a lot of the parameters that sit in the blood that give us an idea of whether the horse is infected with something or whether it has an internal metabolic problem. A lot of these tests though, take time most veterinary practice have an in-house laboratory that we do ourselves where you can take a blood test and nine times out of ten you'll probably have a result within an hour or two which is which is great and that's what most people want and expect but there are a few tests out there now as things move on and kits get smaller and smaller and smaller and more mobile that we can actually offer you in the field one of the tests that we now make available to most of our clients is something called serum amyloid A. It's an inflammatory protein that raises really quickly and drops off quite quickly as well in the response to inflammation. One of our biggest problems that we have as vets out in the field, so when you're not in a hospital situation, is you probably only get a very small snapshot of that individual and you need to know whether you need to do something quickly or whether you can sit on it and wait for treatment to work. Serial amyloid A is the perfect way to assess that. There are small little what we call colorimeters, so small little readers now that we can take out into the field. I mean, our reader is probably the size of a small little Tupperware box. We just need a single blood sample. Nine minutes later, we have a value. That value gives us an idea of whether there is massive inflammation going on within the patient. We know because the inflammation markers go up and down very quickly, whether then we're getting an improvement. So with these kind of cases, we can tell you that, yes, the horse is sick. We can come back 12, 24 hours later and do another one. And you can say, this horse is getting significantly better. It may not look clinically as well as it could do, but it gives us an idea in the field of how that horse is doing. However, it could be the completely opposite. We could say, actually, this is getting worse. The inflammatory marker is going up. Therefore, we need to either A, consider a change in the treatment protocol, or even does it come to a referral? And there are a couple of conditions, like particularly with colitis. Colitis, some of them you find you can manage in the field with some fluid therapy and just supportive therapy. Other forms of colitis, if they do roll on a little bit more, become so problematic that they warrant hospitalization and proper fluid therapy by looking and monitoring 
not only the hematology and the biomechanistry, but looking at that serum amyloid A gives us an idea of whether that case is getting better or not. So it gives your veterinary surgeon the capacity to say, no, we've got to do something different now before this gets even worse. So there is the availability out there that as technology improves and as all of these tests become more and more compact and more and more mobile, that we can do all of this in the field for you. So keep an eye out for if your vet turns up with a small little machine literally in the palm of his hand or her hand and ask for a blood sample and say, can we run an SAA or a similar amyloid A? Allow them to do that. It'll give them a lot more information, can make much more educated decisions and prevent additional expense probably in the long run for your patient. Thank you, Ricky. Great advice there. Well, that's all we've got time for today. We'll be back next week on the Horse and Hound podcast when we'll be talking to eventing legend Ian Stark about his glittering career and what makes him such a party animal. We'll also be getting advice from Ricky on treating wounds. Don't forget that if you'd like to listen to our weekly podcast on Thursday, 24 hours before it goes on public release, you could do so by joining Horse and Hound Plus. To find out more about the benefits of becoming a Horse and Hound Plus member, visit horseandhound.co.uk forward slash plus. Meanwhile, have a great week. I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.